Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Is the United States a friend in need for European countries? As the energy crisis tightens its grip on Europe, efforts to find alternatives to Russian energy are not as easy as promised. The share of Russian natural gas in EU's total imports has halved from over 40 percent in 2021. With the winter approaching, countries are scrambling to import energy from elsewhere, particularly the United States and Norway, only to be met with skyrocketing prices. German and French political leaders have made their displeasure public while U.S. companies are raking in record revenues. Who is profiteering from this energy crisis? Why are friends not so friendly in times of need? I'm pleased to be joined here in the studio by Mr. Teng Jianqing, Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies, and Aina Tangan, Senior Fellow at the Chinese think tank, Taiha Institute, and founder of Asian Narratives. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So let's take a look at the, the price fluctuations of natural gas. According to Dutch title transfer facility or TTF that's Europe's main benchmark for gas trading gas prices in Europe hit a record high in late August that peak you're seeing there reaching around 340 euros or about 330 US dollars per megawatt hour since then it has uh, seen a, a dip but it is still at this moment more than double the pre-war prices so Mr. Tung let me go to you first what exactly are the reasons of the current energy shortage yeah you can give a lot of reasons to such a shortage of energy uh, European countries are facing now I think two important uh, things we should mention here number one is the conflict between Russia and uh, Ukraine you know after at least uh, uh, seven months the conflict is still there, and uh, I'm sure uh, that as a result of such a conflict, the EU countries imposed uh, several rounds of sanctions against Russia and also gave. Including support. sanctions on imports of uh, energy? Uh, yeah, of course, uh, at least uh, the sixth, uh, the sixth uh, round uh, of sanction against uh, Russia, including crude oil, gasoline, and of course, this time uh, the EU countries, you know. Uh, have been uh, discussing the uh, possible uh, sanction on gas. And uh, this is one important reason. Another, is, of course, is the, the strategic uh, consideration by some countries because, you know, before the uh, conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, some countries uh, had uh, proposed that the European countries should uh, cut off the energy connection with Russia. You mean the United States? Oh, of course. And uh, uh, they said for decades the European countries had been hijacked by uh, the Russian energy. So they should cut off such a connection or cooperation with Russia. Uh, so this is a actually long-standing uh, uh, policy by some countries. Mm. Well, right now, definitely the European Union has become the largest destination of uh, U uh, the United States liquefied natural gas, uh, according to the wish of some country. However, French leaders seem not to be happy. For instance, French President Emmanuel Macron complained last week that uh, in the spirit of great friendship, we will say to our American and Norwegian friends, you are super, you supply us with energy and gas, but one thing that can go on for too long is us paying four times more than the price at which you sell to your industry. He added that is not exactly the meaning of friendship. 
And German economy minister Robert Habeck also last week used the words astronomical prices to refer to U.S. supplied gas. He called for more solidarity from the U.S. in assisting its energy-pressed allies in Europe. Um, is a kind of uh, profiteering going on here, Aina? Well, yes, there is, but it's you know you have to say why did it happen, and you know as as was just said, I mean this is because uh, of an ill-fated war that was started and pushed onto Russia uh, by the United States by you know continuing to um, you know impose into their security zones. Uh, everybody knew that this would result in war, so you can't be surprised at that. Now, what is surprising is the U.S. said there's going to be a war. Remember, they said yes, yes, there's going to be an invasion. Did they warn uh, the Europeans, uh, look, you know, you, you should be making other provisions since, uh, for instance, Germany gets 40% of their energy from Russia? No, they didn't. Uh, so, you know, there are those in Europe who are beginning to feel that the U.S. does not have their best interest at heart. I was at a symposium where it was clearly said the, uh, these were ambassador ambassadors who said we cannot rely entirely on the United States. This is a very big statement. But this is not astonishing. I mean, Macron, for instance, the German leaders making it public that they're not happy with the kind of price that they're being charged. Sure, they're not happy and they're not happy about, uh, you know, what happened in Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia backing OPEC's uh, two million barrels a day of oil decrease. But, you know, these are market factors. Uh, a lot of these uh, oil companies, they say, well, where were you when we were actually having to pay people to take oil, right? When we were losing billions and billions of dollars, where was the friendship then? So right now, you know, there's not a lot of trust in the world, and that's one of the major problems. And everybody is kind of like, well, when it's good for me, it's good for me. When it's good for you, I don't you know, it's not my problem. Well, according to U.S. official data in the first quarter of this year, the U.S. LNG exports to the EU and U.K. tripled than the amount uh, the same period last year. And in the first half of this year, the U.S. exported more natural gas to the European markets than the whole of last year. And actually, the United States now is the largest LNG uh, exporter in the world. So is that the kind of excellent opportunity to rid Europe of its energy dependence on Russia that uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was talking about? No, I don't think that way because the cooperation between you know Russia and the European countries uh, has been there for decades, and uh, of course the European countries uh, have got a lot from such uh, energy cooperation. And this time, uh, the United States would like to increase its export, uh, not only gas, but also uh, the oil and some other energy to European continent. So this is actually a competition between two major powers. How can control the market in uh, European energy market? So this is a very uh, tricky in a situation the European countries are facing now. If we look at the recent development, especially after uh, the uh, co conflict between Russia and uh, Ukraine, you can see who you know, has got the most largest part of such uh, cooperation, army energy cooperation. So this is a very clear-cut uh, signal to the outside world who would like to take the market of e uh, European energy. Well, at this moment, I mean, not, not only the United States is taking over the market share, but the price is extraordinary, as, as uh, we can find out from the U.S. official website. The U.S. LNG price jumped from 7 U.S. dollar to almost 13 U.S. dollar per thousand cubic feet from July of 2021 to July this year. That's almost doubling, okay? And it was 
okay, it's an increase of three quarters, and it's even the price was even higher in June. So it is estimated that Europe will have to pay as much as ten times more than usual for natural gas this winter.、Uh, is the situation really bad? I mean,、uh, when European leaders were Making their response, were drafting their response to the crisis when they were rolling out these sanctions. Did they not foresee the energy cost reaching so high, Ina? No, I mean there's、uh, quotes from European leaders who said, "Look, Russia has the economy the size of Portugal. They're completely dependent on selling their energy to Europe. They aren't going anywhere. We can push and prod them and try to get them to be more amenable or change towards what we want." But you know, one, one of the things you have to consider about this energy situation is the downstream effects, because what happens when Europe has to pay more for energy? In essence, their production. Will go down because they、right. cannot be competitive neither at home nor abroad. Right now, you're seeing in Germany and France companies pouring out, looking for alternatives where they can produce and still be competitive. While filing bankruptcy domestically, there are、mm. a record number of. It, it's not、companies. only that, but I mean they're decimating. I mean the, the the effect of this is going to decimate the European economy. It's going to hollow it out from the inside because they can no longer be competitive. This is, you know, no one is really talking about this. Where is the U.S. saying, "Look, these are our allies, our friends. We have to figure out a well, way." Well, the U.S. will、them. be happy to take in the investment. Well, they take in the investment, but it's very short term. I mean, the amount of trade between the U.S. and Europe is monumental. To get to undercut your own ally and partner. All right. Over the long term. Well, again, coming back to what、uh, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was talking about—an excellent opportunity to rid Europe of its energy dependence on Russia, but at what costs? Crippling Europe. Mr. Tong, I mean, this scene from the United States, and you know, now the Europeans, companies, and ordinary citizens mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are facing a real crisis. Yeah,、uh, the big issue is how can the European countries get such independence on energy? Can European countries produce more oil, more gas? No, the answer is no. So this is actually a very you know, interesting question we are dis discussing now. And、uh, if you look at the U.S. policy toward Europe, this is actually、uh, corn with two sides. On one side is a high land of morality. How high? You know, how can we you know, go ahead with the higher? Uh, morality and、uh, another should be the commercial interest for、uh, some countries concerned, especially the United States. The United States had has already got a lot、uh, from the recent、uh, rocketing uh, prices uh, of energy, and、uh, so the Russian side would like to use its energy as a tool. You know, it can get some you know benefit from such a trade, and this is commercial interest. And on other, on on another side,、uh, Russia can get some political interest because some European countries, like Hungary, they you know not interested in the sanction against、uh, Russia, especially in energy. So the, there there is no、uh, solidarity. Among EU countries, the 27 countries are not in one position. Right.、Uh, well, obviously,、position. obviously, last week during the summit, they were not able to reach、mm -hmm. any、uh, agreement on whether to put a temporary、um, gas price cap.、Mm -hmm. But very simply put, Ina, could the U.S. government do anything? I mean, you can talk about 
energy being in the hands of private companies. You know, it's market force, market drives up the price. When the supply is smaller, the demand is high. But could the U.S. government do anything if they're really friends with European countries? Well, it'd be very difficult to intercede with the, uh, the actual uh, companies themselves. They could just say there's a windfall profit tax and we'll use that to help our, our neighbors. But really it, is, is a, it has to be a more comprehensive action. I mean, in the U.S., they're at the peak of what they can produce in terms of compressed natural gas, which is, of course, much more expensive than gas going All through right. a pipe. Okay, it's going to be a very complicated situation. Many thanks to Mr. Teng Jianqing. And uh, Aina Tangan will take a very short break. And when we come back, I, I might talk with Chairman of the Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies of Armenia. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Bilateral relations between China and Armenia are deeply rooted, dating back to ancient times when Armenia was a major hub on the Silk Road. The modern version of the Silk Road, known as the Belt and Road Initiative, launched by China, is driving deeper cooperation between the two sides. How do Armenians see this relationship and China's development? How is China's political system and the Communist Party of China seen through an Armenian scholar's perspective? Earlier, I had the pleasure to talk to Dr. Benjamin Pogosian, chairman of the Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies, joining me from Yale the capital city of Armenia. I started by asking him about his personal experiences here in China. So I understand you worked for 10 years for the only Armenian state think tank dealing with foreign policy and security. You have prepared and managed the elaboration of more than 100 policy papers which were presented to your country's uh, leadership. And in 2017, you founded the Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies and you have studied China since the beginning of this century because of the fascinating growth of the Chinese economy. But you only came to China in person in 2016, during which you said you were deeply impressed with what you saw. So had you wished you could have visited China earlier and what were you looking for on that trip? Did you find it? Definitely, the first trip to China in 2016, it was really impressive. Yes, of course, I had a lot of information about China, academic information and media information. But when my first visit took place in 2016, I was really impressed, and not only by fantastic infrastructure, by the fantastic development path, but also the mostly I was suppressed and I was impressed by the Chinese people, the attitude of Chinese people to foreigners. Because uh, due to my job, I have traveled in many countries in the world, but there are only few countries when you really feel like home. When first time you enter the country, but you feel like home. And China was one of these few countries when I really feel myself as a home, and I really received this uh, very positive atmosphere and very positive welcome by Chinese people. So definitely infrastructure, economic development, these were really, really impressive. But number one, it was the attitude of Chinese people which impressed me more. So you were interacting with ordinary people, men and women, uh, during their daily life in the small alleyways, I guess, in, in cities or in rural areas. Uh, but how do you understand, besides the warm feeling they gave you, they shared with you, how do you understand their needs and aspirations and the way how these needs and aspirations were met? Did you feel that they were reasonably positive about the future, that they were reasonably satisfied with uh, the way their life has been going over the past few decades? 
Definitely, I have encounters both with people in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and also in people with the younger generation. And when they compare their own life, like for example, China 40, 45 years from now, and current China, they really, they were said that the development of China was really impressive, and the living standards were much, much higher. So they all were looking to the future with much optimism, telling that at least starting from 1979-1980, when the reform and opening up started, there was tremendous development in China. And uh, several hundred million people, I will say 700 million people, have been raised from poverty, which is really fantastic achievement by China. So yes, in China I have a feeling that this is a country which has confidence, and this is a people which have confidence that they are moving towards the right direction. And there is the confidence that their children will live much better lives than their parents. Obviously, your experience is very different from what uh, people would normally read about in their press, in their newspaper, or on their TV when they live in a, in a different country and they haven't seen things for themselves. Um, the way how the Chinese people's needs and aspirations are met are, is described by China as a bottom-up, people-centered, whole-process democracy. Uh, what is your understanding of this uh, Chinese concept and its legitimacy? Uh, my understanding is that Chinese state and the Communist Party of China, they are really work for the people. So what I saw in China, that the entire state apparatus, they are working to fulfill the dreams of Chinese people. We all know that China has a long history of several thousand years, and definitely, uh, based on their tradition, the Chinese state and the Communist Party of China, they are making efforts to make everyday life of Chinese better and better. So my understanding of this whole process democracy is that the state and the leading Communist Party, they are doing everything possible to make, to raise living standards of the Chinese. So the number one priority for the Chinese state is uh, to increase the living standards of uh, Chinese people, which is definitely the most important task for any state. How do you understand the leadership role provided by the Communist Party of China then? And uh, what do you see is the difference between its role and that of uh, political parties in a Western sense? In the Western sense, uh, we hear a lot of things about democracy, but let's understand what democracy means. It means the rule of the people. But in many Western countries, in reality, we see the rule of money. Because we see how the big corporations, they are funding the campaigns, we know that in campaigns, uh, candidates they are spending billions of dollars. And when you are receiving donations from big companies, regardless of what they are representing, it's a defense industrial complex, it's a big pharma, definitely they have also influence on you. And also, let's not forget that many citizens in the West, they have disappointment on the system. And we see less and less people participating in elections. And what we have, we have, for example, usually 40% of people participate in election, from this 40%, let's assume 40% votes for some party, which means that in general population, this party receives less than 20% of votes. But then he starts to rule. So again, if we speak about democracy as a rule of people, but how can we say that the party which receives 20 or even less than 20% of the votes from our majority of population can represent the population and can rule on behalf of these people? And also we see some cases of legal corruption in the Western democracies. For example, the lobbying, which is very famous in the United States. Mm. From my perspective, what does lobbying mean? The big and small corporations, they are legally spending money to influence the political system. Is it corruption? Yes. Is it legal corruption? Yes. 
Some people would say, look, um, okay, there are a lot of defects with the Western political system, but in China, you don't have the so-called one-person, one-vote system. How do you ensure that the Chinese people's will or their aspiration are translated into policies and, uh, you know, uh, implemented along the way? What is your observation of the way how Chinese democracy works and can work? My understanding is that China has very clear filters, and really there is a meritocratic system. So you have to have real capacities and abilities to go forward in the state of state apparatus. And this is really very important. At the basic level, as far as I know, there are gen general elections in China, but then there is a system of filters which based on meritocracy. So only people who have capacities to govern a village and successfully govern a village, then they are allowed to start to govern a city. And you have capacities to govern a city and you show that uh, you can reach some successes, then you are allowed to go on the regional level and then on the state level. So there is a clear system which works, and at the end of the day, the own people should give the assessment. Yes, the Chinese system, it works for China. And we all know that China is now in a position to force its system on others, telling others you should live as China or you should live as a China. So this is also very important, that the system works for China. And the fantastic achievements of China, and everybody speaks about fantastic achievements of China, at least for the last 40 years, mm. and I may say starting from 1949, when People's Republic of China was established. This fantastic achievement is a clear sign that this system works for China. And when we are speaking, does this system good or bad, what is the criteria? The criteria, mm. does this system works right. for the benefits of its own people? From your background in general as an Armenian, do you understand China's need for a political system that's historically logical, if you know what I mean? I mean, our current system was not airdropped from somewhere or imposed on China, but introduced, found the soil that was receptive and needy and grew out of, uh, out of the soil, out of the environment. It is not something that's imposed onto the Chinese people. What is your understanding of the historical logic of uh, the Chinese political system? Armenian people, as the Chinese people, we have very long history, thousand year, millennia history. And as you mentioned, yes, our relations are rooted in the deep uh, history and in a deep cooperation coming back from ancient Silk Road, when Armenia was one of the hubs of this ancient Silk Road. So what is the common between Armenian and Chinese people? First, we value our national identity. Second, we value our national traditions. We are not against globalization, we are not against modernization, but also we do not understand globalization or, and modernization as a way to forget everything about your identity, to forget all your national values, and accept some general or globalized values. And here I fully understand the Chinese respect to their values, traditions, and their history. Because definitely the system should also be based on your traditions and history. Again, it does not mean you are against modernization, it does not mean you are against globalization, but also both Armenian and Chinese people. We value our identity, we value our national traditions, and we would like to base our current system also on our long history, millennia long history. There is this entrenched uh, idea of, uh, of a dichotomy on many people's mind about uh, political system, for instance, is either democracy or autocracy. They seem to see the world in black and white. Either you are like us, then you're democratic, you're part of us, you're friend or partner, or you are authoritarian, then you're against us, you are, you are not one of us. How do you look at such worldviews? From the point of view of Armenia or any small state, 
this dichotomy or the world dividing black and white, either you're with us or you're against us, this is very dangerous. Because small and compact states like an Armenia and even I will say middle powers, they don't want to be catch up in this great power competition and we don't want to be pushed that, okay, you should not be friend with this country because he's an authoritarian or you should be a friend of this country because he's a dem democracy. From our perspective, the key here is a national interest and the key here is a just system which will protect also the rights of the small and middle powers. Because unfortunately we know the history, at least starting from 16th century, and we know the history of slavery and other terrible crimes which also have been done by the powers which now claim that are the poor democratic and etc. So from Armenian perspective, all this dichotomy uh, between so-called democracy and autocracy, it has uh, nothing to do with the real uh, base, but it has to do with geopolitical interest. 2022 marks the 30th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between Armenia and China. And Armenia was one of the first countries to join China's Belt and Road Initiative. You have also been involved in materializing bilateral cooperation projects on the ground. Can you brief us uh, briefly on the progress so far and uh, the prospects looking ahead? Armenia values uh, its relationship with China and Armenia values Belt and Road Initiative. And we strongly believe that the emerging multipolar world and the world is really would be multipolar and also it will be multilateral. What does it mean multilateral? It does mean that all powers regardless of their size should have something international uh, relations. And we fully support Chinese vision of multilateral world when regardless of your size, every power has rights, every power has obligations, and we really welcome the increased involvement of China in international relations. Regarding Belt and Road Initiative, the key goal behind this initiative is to create new infrastructure, uh, physical infrastructure, digital infrastructure. We all know about digital Silk Road, Health Silk Road, and physical infrastructure. And Armenia is definitely interested as uh, you mentioned, Armenia was part of ancient Silk Road and Armenia is ready to be part of also current new Silk Road, especially digital Silk Road. Because, uh, as you probably know, IT sector is one of the most developing sectors in Armenia, every year mm -hmm. recording 25% of growth. And mm -hmm. here Armenia can play a significant role to be part of digital Silk Road. Great. Well, I certainly do hope that uh, your country's leadership and the general public share the same vision about the Belt and Road Initiative and about relations with China vis-à-vis um, -vis Armenia. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin Pogosan, Chairman of the Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies in Armenia. Joining me from the Armenian capital of Yerevan. Thank you very much. And that's it for this edition of The Point with me, Lushin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got The Point.